All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Pastor John. Uh, thank you, Pastor Steve, for, for inviting me uh, out here to speak with you guys. Uh, just a quick little personal apology. Is I, I'm finding this chest cold for about a week, and uh, I got this nasally voice. And, and I know how it is. I mean, y- y'all going to be really nice to me, but uh, it's not easy hearing somebody with a nasally voice. So I beg your pardon from the very beginning here. Um, but yeah, Pastor Steve and I, we go way back. Uh, we've known each other, I think, since the fifth grade, if I'm not mistaken. So we've grown up together, and Pastor John, uh, as, I, as he mentioned, I wasn't going to share this, but as he mentioned, I was a seventh grade teacher, so I've known him as a youth group student growing up, and it's just awesome, right, to see everybody here uh, and seeing where God has led us. And, and I said this in the first service, uh, that if you believe, if you don't believe in God or if you don't believe in miracles, the fact that all three of us are standing up here as pastors like 20-some-odd years later, that's truly a miracle of God, and uh, that's really all, all, all about the power of God. Um, but... Um, as Pastor John mentioned, I am from Atlanta, but I'm actually from here. I'm, I, I grew up uh, in Cerritos, and I went to college in UCLA. And in fact, the very last home that we lived in was here in Irvine, up in Woodridge Village. So I'm very familiar and, and, and know this area very well, except for this is all new. I was telling Pastor John, as I got off the highway or freeway now, I'm, I'm back here, right? I got off the freeway, I turned right, and I'm like, where is this thing taking me? Because I don't remember anything developed here, but uh, it's developed quite a bit. And uh, I left... Uh, the L.A. Orange County area back in 2005 to uh, Atlanta, and uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy that a Southern California guy goes out to Atlanta, but Atlanta's not as podunk as you might think. It's not too bad. You know, it's, it's got me saying y'all and what have you now. I've been out there for 11 years, but it's actually quite developed, and uh, God has uh, some great things happening over there, and uh, the reason why I was sent out to Atlanta was uh, there was a Korean church that needed an English ministry pastor to start up the ministry, so we went out there and we did that, and we did that for about eight years, and then my wife and I really had a burden to plant a church, and that church blessed us and supported us, and we planted a church called Four Points Church uh, back in 2012, so we've been doing this for a little bit over three years, and uh, it's an Asian-American church plant, so we have a lot of different Asian-Americans and and what we call third culture kind of people that are are a part of our church, and so we've been doing that for about three and a half years, and we've been uh, just incredibly blessed, and uh, God has been gracious in our ministry here. I am about as big as I get as an Asian American. Uh, I stand six foot four with shoes, and I weigh 260 some odd pounds. Um, that's before breakfast. After breakfast, I, I, I can't really go into that. Uh, I have two boys. I have a 13-year-old and a, a 10-year-old, and uh, the 13-year-old plays baseball. The 10-year-old, to my surprise, is actually a pretty good golfer, so I think that might be the way we're going to try this thing here. Uh, so we, we stay pretty busy, and... Um, I'm, I'm terribly uh, ex- just excited and, and thankful that, that uh, I have the opportunity to come back here kind of to my, my home in Southern California and to share uh, with you all here this morning. Um, so what, what I was thinking about sharing was I was kind of wrestling and grappling. What, what should I share about? And I just wanted to share with you uh, just kind of a, a personal story uh, that I endured about seven years ago. And as I share the story, though, the one thing I want us to be able to walk away and pull out here is that as I tell the story, even though it's about me to a certain extent, it's really not about me, but it's really about God. It's really about the power of God. It's about uh, the, the mercy and the grace of God. And, and as I share this story with you, I hope you can glean that. I hope you can understand God's power, God's grace, God's mercy, because literally I would not be standing here before you if it weren't for all of that. And so from this story, I, as I lived through it personally, I learned some life lessons. I learned a lot. I mean, there's a lot of life lessons that I learned, biblical life lessons. But this morning, I want to share with you three biblical life lessons that I learned 
as I had to kind of endure this about seven years ago. So uh, if you're okay, let me just kind of jump right into this. Um, it, it began in March of 2009, <clears throat> and so it's about seven years ago, and, and I was 36 years old. So if you do the math, I'm 43. I still think I'm pretty young. I mean, 43 is not that old anymore, right? 40 is a new 30s, right? Uh, at 36, you're really young, and uh, uh, I had just come back from my physical, and, and my doctors told me I was perfect bill of health. Even though I've always been a big guy, Pastor Steve will tell you I've never been scared. I don't know what skinny looks like or feels like. I've always been a big guy, but uh, my blood pressure was always excellent. My cholesterol was always outstanding. So I've always been healthy. Um, but I had flown out to L.A. for some, some family business, and then I had to fly back to Atlanta. And uh, after I flew back to Atlanta, I, I thought I was fine. I thought everything was normal. But I started to notice that I, I started to kind of struggle a little bit breathing. It was getting a little bit harder to breathe. And I kind of share that with my family, and, and my family is not the most gracious family in the world. My wife kind of mentioned that maybe it needs to, you know, it kind of has to do with your, your belly. You might need to kind of maybe go exercise a little bit more. And at that time, my kids were three and six, and they were just blunt. They are like, Daddy, you're fat. That's why you can't breathe, right? I was like, yeah, you're, you're probably right. There's truth there. And so I didn't really think about much about it. And the, the church that I was at at that time had a basketball tournament that we were starting. So I, I jumped in and said, hey, let's go play some basketball. It'll be probably good for me to lose some weight and maybe reduce this inability to breathe. And uh, the first week we were having this tournament, and I really couldn't play. I, I go up the court just a few times, and I was just huffing and puffing wind. And my church members weren't any, any more gracious than my family, too. And they're like, oh, Pastor Peter, you're old now. you got to retire. you got to put that that stuff away. And uh, so the next week I decided, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to prove to them that I can still play. I played high school ball. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go and prove to them I can play. So I bought brand new shoes because it's all about the shoes, right? Because you know, you just need new shoes. So, so I thought the new shoes would do the, do the, do the trick. And I thought, you know, I got another week under my belt. Uh, I, I should be able to play better, but I actually ended up playing worse and the breathing got even more difficult. So the third week came around and said, okay, this is really the time to finally prove to them that I can actually still play. I went up and down the court about twice, and I was on my hands and knees just, just tr trying, to, trying to breathe. And I said, okay, I'm, gonna tr I'm just going to try to keep on pushing this through. And then I got accidentally tripped, and then I fell over, and then this is where everything started to kind of fall apart, where all of a sudden my knee, for, for my leg from the knee down just shut down. It was absolutely shut down. And I was cramping. Every single muscle in my leg from my knee down was cramping. And uh, uh, it's not like a regular cramp where you can kind of stretch it out. Because if I try to stretch it out from one side, the other side, you know, it was just the whole thing was cramping. My toes were cramping. Everything was cramping. And it was going on for about a good hour. So for the first five, ten minutes, everyone's laughing. I'm laughing. Ha ha. Old guy. Okay, I get it. But after about 15, 20, 30 minutes, it started to get a little scary. It started to get, get a little nerve-wracking. And then after about an hour, a little over an hour, it finally subsided and the cramping went away. But then my leg felt ice cold. Absolutely ice cold. Now, I don't know if there's any medical professionals here. You kind of probably know what's going on, right? And any good, sane, normal human being at that point would do what? Go to the hospital. Any, let me, let me qualify that. Any good, sane, normal, Asian-American man, what would they do? I went home. I went straight home. I went up. I went home, Googled WebMD, and uh, I didn't really mind, you know, I didn't want to be those guys that said, oh, WebMD says this, because I actually Googled WebMD and it said, if, ice, if your leg feels ice cold, you need to go to the ER right away. I was like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. 
So I just stayed home, I slept it off and what have you. And the next morning I woke up, my legs are still ice cold. And, but I was like, you know what, it'll eventually get better. And so I just kind of went on with my regular week, uh, went to church, went to work, what have you. And then I uh, came back home and picked up my son, uh, Micah, who was three o'clock from, uh, from preschool and he fell asleep in the car. And he's not a, he's, he's kind of like me, he's a big boy. And so I, I had to carry him all the way upstairs to put him in his bed, and by the time I got to upstairs putting, carrying my son up to the bed, I actually fell to my knees because I couldn't breathe. And finally I said, okay, this is not normal. This is not normal human behavior. So finally I called my doctor, set up an appointment, and then he saw me, and then he immediately set up a, uh, another appointment with a specialist, a cardiologist. So the next day, Friday, uh, March 27th, rolls around. This is 1 p.m. I'm sitting in the cardiologist's office. And I'm still thinking, okay, yeah, okay, I get it. Something's wrong with me, but maybe a shot, maybe a couple pills, maybe real simple stuff. that will take care of me, right? Well, the, the cardiologist saw me, did all the, the scans, did all the tests, and then he sits me down and he says this. And this is when I realized, oh, wow, something actually kind of big is happening. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I doubt anyone's ever experienced this, where your cardiologist looks you dead in the eye and says, Mr. Lim, I am going to personally drive you to the hospital. That told me, wow, why would he personally drive me to the hospital? I, I, something must be really, really happening to me, or he's just a real courteous guy. Um, but I, I said to him, you know, my house is literally across the, the doctor's office. Can I go home and grab some stuff? He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm going to personally drive you to the hospital right now. So he drives me to the hospital, which wasn't too far from the house, sits me down, and then, then he's telling the, the attendee, the admitting person, that he needs to get a room right away. And it just kind of started to sound a little bit serious. And I was, I was still, you know, but I was kind of like, numb to all of it. I wasn't really sure what was going on. Uh, so I told my family, hey, they took me to the hospital. Why don't you guys come and swing by? <clears throat> so they swung by, and we were just kind of hanging out there. My kids thought it was the coolest thing. You know, they're three and six at the time, right? Seeing their dad in the hospital with all these gadgets, and they thought it was the coolest thing. And I was like, hey, you know what? It's going to be fine. Um, everything will be okay, and, and I'm sure I'll be home pretty soon. So I sent him home um, and said, I'll just come by tomorrow. Well, after I sent them home, 8 p.m. rolls around, and, and the physician comes back <clears throat> with the CAT scan result. And then he says to me, Mr. Lim, you have what's called a pulmonary embolism of the saddle. And to me, that's non-English. I have no idea what that means. Uh, I don't know if you know what that means, but to me, I had no idea what that meant. And uh, I was like, okay, I, I really don't know what that means. And he says, well, we're going to have to send you down to a different hospital in the city, and you're going to have to have surgery. I was like, okay. Again, I still didn't understand what was going on. And so finally, uh, uh, they, they prepped me, brought the ambulance, and rushed me down to, to the hospital. And then, then uh, I called my wife, said, hey, uh, don't come to this hospital. They're sending me down to a different hospital. It's called Piedmont Hospital in the city. Come down there. And then uh, I took out my Ocean's Helio back then. This is pre-iPhone days, or, or maybe I wasn't cool enough to have iPhone quite yet. I took my Ocean's Helio, started messaging the, the church and the leadership and all, all, all the people saying that, hey, uh, this weekend, I'm probably not going to be able to speak. They're taking me down to the hospital and what have you. Um, but again, I'm still, maybe I'm just dumb. Maybe I'm just dense. I don't know. But I, I still didn't really understand what was going on. And uh, we roll into the operating room, and, and they just take me straight from the ambulance, and, and it, it felt so quick. They sent me right into the OR. And I get to the OR, the nurses and everybody's already there, and they're starting to prep me, get me ready to, to uh, have surgery. And then one of the, the main nurses came to me, the head nurse came to me and said, Mr. Lim, do you have a living will? And that's when I realized oh, this is kind of serious. And I looked at her, why would I need a living will? And she said, oh, they didn't tell you. Tell me what? You're being prepped right now to have open heart surgery. And I was like, oh, 
And that's when it hit. I was like, oh, okay, this is really serious. Um, so then uh, my family, my wife arrived, a couple of church people arrived by then, and I told them, hey, this is what's going on. I told, uh, called my senior pastor and said, I'm not coming in, uh, uh, I'm having surgery, so we need to make sure that everything's all taken care of. Uh, and I was just taking care of church stuff. And, and, and I was always wondering, uh, kind of, I, I said this in the first service too, like how I would react. Like back in my mind, I don't know if you're like me, I, I am a little strange. You can t- talk to Pastor Steve, I, I am strange. But in the back of my mind, I'm an only child. So when you're an only child, you have all these imaginary things happening. So as an only child, one of the things I always thought about was how would I would react when I'm about to die? Like, how would I face death? And I always wondered, you know, am I going to be really kind of bold? Am I going to be stoic? Am I going to cower? You know, I always wonder that. And so during this time, I realized, oh, I'm going to be actually very calm. I was super calm during this time. Told the church this and told... Uh, uh, some people that what needed to be done. I called one of my church leaders and said, hey, if anything happens, make sure you take care of my family. And then my wife is there. And instead of saying, I love you, all this lovely, bubbly stuff, I'm not really like that. I say, hey, it's April 20, this eight, March 27th, April 1's rolling around. So you got to make sure you pay the bills. So here's where all the checkbooks are. Here's where the bills are. And then if anything happens, here's where the life insurance policy is. And then I said goodbye. And then they rolled me into the operating room. And I was, as I was being rolled into the operating room, by the way, there's a distinct smell of an operating room that, that I will never forget, and man, it's cold. Um, but as I was being lifted or, or, or being rolled into the operating room, I, I had three thoughts that came to my mind, just three thoughts. And the three thoughts ended up being three prayers. And I said, God, please be with my loved ones. That's the first thing I prayed. Second thing I prayed was, Lord, please be with my family, my parents, my, my kids, my wife, take care of them. And three, Lord, I just commit my life into your hands. Whatever happens, happens. And I trust that, that, that your will will be done. And that was it. And I was talking to, to someone earlier this, uh, this morning, and they told me to count down from 10. I think I got to 7, and I was, boom, out. Now, <clears throat> before I continue, from this, I want to share with you the first two lessons that I learned. I learned a lot. I, I really did learn a lot. But I, I do want to share with you the first two biblical lessons that I learned. And the first one is this, and it comes from Job chapter 14, 5. And again, uh, Pastor John shared this. I want to read it again. Uh, my version is, is the, the NIV, and it says, Man's days are determined. You have decreed the numbers of his months and have set limits he cannot, she cannot exceed. The first lesson that I learned is that life is a gift. It's not an entitlement. Life is a gift, not an entitlement. Most of us in this room are in our 20s, 30s, 40s, some maybe in our 50s, that's still fairly young. And I, I'm, spe- I'm speaking especially to those who are in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. I was only 36. I never imagined, never imagined at 36 I would have open heart surgery at all. And most of us in this room feel like we have a lifetime left to live. Most of us in this room, I think, realize that we probably have, eh, I got about you know, 40, 50 years left of, of life to live. The first lesson I learned, though, is that through my experience that life is a precious gift that can end at any time. Life is not an entitlement. God does not promise us. God does not guarantee us 70, to live to 70. He doesn't guarantee us to live to 80. He doesn't guarantee us to live to 90. Our lives are numbered. As Job declares, our days are determined. Friends, we can't assume that we have 50 years left to live. We can't assume that we have 40 or 30 or 20 years remaining. What I was reminded on the operating table was that life is a gift, and none of us 
None of us knows the expiration date. None of us. And so if that's the case, then we have to live our life the way it was intended. We have to understand and own and, and really value this gift that we are given called life. Um, I was reminded of this, this multiple times throughout this entire ordeal as I look back at it. Um, I'm just going to give a quick biology lesson because I had no idea where a pulmonary artery was at that time too. But the pulmonary arteries are the two largest arteries that feed right out of your heart. So they go from your heart and they feed oxygen blood to your lungs. Um, <clears throat> the blood clot that formed originally was in my leg. And, and in, in retrospect, we think that it happened from that flight back. I, I flew back from LA. And in about a four and a half hour flight, the blood clot formed in the vein of my leg. And it broke off and it traveled all the way up to my heart. And it started to lodge in the pulmonary artery uh, uh, of my heart. And it lodged in the saddle. So, the, so imagine it kind of looks like this. It lodged right there. And it was virtually 100% closed. Um, and when the physicians and all the medical professionals, all the nurses and doctors found out that I had played basketball for three weeks, their mouths just dropped. It, it didn't make any sense because most people who have this, as soon as they walk off the airplane, if it gets to that spot, they just kind of keel over. They just die. Um, it's one of the leading uh, uh, reasons why people are, are, are just kind of suddenly fall over, right? Um, I had it for three weeks, played basketball for three weeks. And they were looking at me and said, you should have been dead that first week that you play basketball, period. There's no explanation that you came this far. There's no explanation that you played for three weeks and you made it inside a, a doctor's office. We just under, don't understand that. <clears throat> they were all stunned. And then um, to just show you how, how fragile the situation was, is that in Atlanta, Atlanta's a big city. Now, don't, you know, don't, you, know we're, we're, you guys are all here. I say you guys now because I'm not from here anymore. But Southern California, uh, L.A., Orange County, you, know, you look at Atlanta, you're like, oh, that's a small city. Atlanta's a big city. It's the biggest city in the south. And, but in that big city, there were only two physicians who knew how to perform this particular surgery. The reason why is that they just don't do it. They don't make it to the operating table. You just don't get that far. You just die. So there's no reason for people to perform this. So there are only two surgeons that do this. So as I was being wheeled to Emory Hospital, they finally got in touch with the number one guy, and then they, they uh, rerouted me to Piedmont. Um, I didn't know this until after fact, but uh, during my post-op where, where, where I was going in for a checkup, the physician talked to, who did my surgery said to me, uh, did you know that the survival rate for your surgery is only 25%? I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm glad no one told me before the surgery. Uh, <laughs> That's, that's, that's really nice of you guys. But so basically, the stats was if I didn't have surgery because of the condition that I was in, 100% you're going to die, or 75% you're going to die in surgery. Those are pretty bad odds, really bad odds. But somehow, by God's grace, I survived. Um, I found out that <clears throat> during my recovery from, from the operating room, that I had crashed a few times too. And so. There are just multiple points in this entire ordeal that I should have gone bye-bye. There's no reason medically explaining that I'm here, but here I am. Here I am. And I think the reason why God kept me alive was to, to help me understand that life is a gift, but then to teach me the second lesson is that invest in what really matters. Invest in what really matters. And what is it that really matters? The Bible tells us, Matthew 22, 37, 39, it tells us that, that the things that matter are two things in life. Two things are the only thing that really matter in life. One is your relationship with God. 
Your relationship with God is what matters most. And two, your relationship with those around you, people, friends, family. So what really matters is your faith and your relationships. You know, when I was in the OR room being prepped for the surgery, <clears throat> I'm telling you this, uh, that, that what came to my mind was not how the Lakers are doing. What came to my mind was not how UCLA was doing. And anyone who knows me well, they'll, they'll know how huge of a UCLA Laker fan that I am. That didn't come to my mind. What, came, what didn't come to my mind was <clears throat> I didn't think about <clears throat> how big my house was. I didn't think about how many zeros were in my bank account. None of that thought came. The only thing that came to my mind was my family, my friends, and God. That was it. Those are the only thoughts that came to my mind. The only thing that mattered when I was lying there, perhaps about to die, were my family, my parents, my wife, my kids, my dear friends, my relationship with God. I'm telling you, friends, just sidebar here, I have no idea how, how, how people can face eternity without knowing Jesus Christ. It was the greatest source of strength for me. But all this to say, all this to say, I think a lot of us, we live our lives investing in things that we think matter, but it really doesn't. And they're not bad things. They're not, they're, we're not investing in sin. We're not investing in things that, that are debaucherous. But we're investing in things that, at the end of the day, don't really matter. You know, Howard Hughes, I don't know who you, if you guys know who he is, but Howard Hughes was a billionaire, kind of a crazy billionaire tycoon. He built the Spruce Goose. He had so much money that he, he just wanted to build the world's biggest plane that flew for like 30 seconds, I think, maybe even less. <clears throat> he had that much money that he could just throw away. But Howard Hughes, one of the wealthiest guys in this world, died alone, all by himself, in a hospital. No friends, no family, no faith in God. When you're about to face eternity, none of that stuff's going to matter. None of it's going to matter. What's going to matter is, did I love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind? And did I love those whom God placed in my life with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Well, the, my next memory uh, was waking up in the ICU, and uh, um, <clears throat> I woke up with a huge tube stuck down my throat, uh, was intubated. By the way, uh, that's just the worst part of surgery. So if there are any physicians here, please be nice to your patient and, and get that tube out of their throat as soon as possible. That was just the, the absolute worst experience. Um, but uh, before I went in, into surgery, the lead uh, nurse told me, uh, Mr. Lim, when you wake up, and I love the way she, she phrased it, right? She didn't say, if you wake up, trying to keep my hopes alive, right? When you wake up, uh, make sure that you don't pull the tube out of your throat. Because uh, a lot of people are prone to do that. Be really calm and just really be good. And I was like, okay, I understand. I, I get it. I'll, I'll do my very best. So then I'm, I'm waking up. The anesthesia is wearing off. I'm waking up. And I notice that I'm not flaring. I notice that I'm, doing really, I'm being really good. I'm really being calm. And so because the, the tube is down my throat, I can't talk to her. So I'm kind of moaning and groaning, getting her attention. She realizes that I'm awake. She brings in the physician. They realize I'm breathing fine. And then in about 15 minutes or so, they take the tube out. And that was just the most glorious feeling. The tube comes out, and you're able to breathe finally, right? And then the first thing I said to the nurse was I looked at her with my voice even more hoarse than it was now. I said, I did good, right? I did good. And she looked over at me and just kind of gave me this kind of winsome smile and said, no, he weren't really good. And I looked down and my hands were tied to the gurney. I was like, oh, I was that bad, huh? And she goes, yeah, you were that bad. I was like, okay, I get it. Um, and then uh, so little, little 
little sidebars here. And it just, you know, just when I when I look back um, at this, <clears throat> um, it, when you go through something like this, and 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 I don't I don't wish this on any even the worst of my enemies. I don't wish this on anyone. But when you go through like this, you can't help but be humbled. You really can't. Um, as I'm in the hospital waking up, I had the tube throat, uh, down my throat. I had IVs in this arm. I had three IVs in this arm. I had two IVs. I had, I had IVs in both of my necks. I had huge chest tu- tubes coming out of my chest. I had six, uh, uh, I think there are defibrillators or either uh, pacemakers coming out of my heart. I mean, I had literally dozens of tubes coming out of me. I was super, super bloated. Um, and uh, then, you know, when you pass gas, you know, either when you're burping or, or you do the other way, you know, these, these female nurses, I'm so embarrassed, but, but these female nurses like look at you and say, Mr. Lim, very good job, good job. I'm like, there's no shame. You lose all sense of shame and pride during that moment, and you're absolutely humbled, absolutely humbled. Um, but let me just close out by sharing my third life lesson that I experienced through all this. The third life lesson I experienced is that I have to live life with meaning and purpose. I want to encourage and challenge you. Live life with meaning and purpose. And I get this from Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 is one of my favorite verses. It's, it's one of my life verses. In fact, we named our, our second son Micah. Uh, we would have named our first son Micah, but we, he was born while we were living here in Southern California. And a good friend of Pastor Steve and I, he had a kid first, and he named him Micah. So I was like, dang it, he stole my kid's name, so I can't use it. So then we named him Moses, then we moved to Atlanta. And then I'm like, well, he's so far away, it's okay if I name my son uh, Micah now. So, so we named our second one Micah. Um, but... One of the reasons why Micah is my favorite, one of my favorite Old Testament books is, is, is this verse right here. Because this verse alone is a blueprint for your life. I mean, this alone is, is like a, a six-week series in terms of preaching. But uh, this verse, it says, I'm going to read it again in the NIV. It says, he has showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? you guys, oftentimes in life, don't, don't you ever wonder, what, what does God want? What's God's will for me in my life? It tells you right here, what does the Lord require of you? It tells us three things. To act justly, act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's right there. This is what it means to live with meaning and purpose. In other words, stop looking at life internally. Stop looking at life and say, what is this life going to do for me? What is this church going to do for me? What is that friend going to do for me? What is my job going to do for me? But how are we, administrators, of justice? How are we in extending mercy? How are we in walking humbly with our God? And to walk humbly doesn't mean to, to have that typical Asian humble experience, well, oh, woe's me, oh, I'm not really, really good. That's not what it's talking about. Humble here, biblically speaking, is talking about putting our rights and privileges below and letting God be the one who guides and leads us. That we humble ourselves to the leadership and the direction of God. Simply put, to walk justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God is how are we in obedience to him? How are we in terms of living our life for him? As I was recovering in the ICU, enjoying the wonders of an ice chip, just by the way, when you go through a situation like that, an ice chip is the most glorious thing ever. And then they gave me some mouthwash uh, from the hospital. I tasted it again about a year later. It was disgusting, but when they gave me that mouthwash, it was like the greatest tasting thing in the world. So, so I actually asked for a bunch, and I took it home, and then that was a mistake. Um, but 
the point that I'm trying to make here is, why are you here? Why did God place you here? Why did God bring you here? Why did God bring you life? And I believe that God wants each and every one of us with this gift of life to live our life with meaning and purpose. Not always looking for ourselves. Not always wondering, what is the next best thing for me? We live in such an individual society. Rather, the way God had designed us is for us to live for others, to love on others, to pursue justice, to pursue mercy, to walk humbly with them. I wish I could say that my health fully recovered, but uh, I battled this thing for about three years. Uh, a few days later, after I was recovering from heart surgery, I thought everything was going to be great. I was like, man, you know, I, I beat the odds. I'm alive, 25% chance, yeah. Then they told me, oh, we uh, found something in your leg, uh, and we need to go back in and have surgery in your leg. What had happened was that <clears throat> the blood clot broke off from the vein of the leg, went into the heart, lodged in the pulmonary artery, and broke back off from the artery. And later on, we found out that I had a hole in my heart. At that time, they didn't know that. So it went back down the hole, went back down the leg into the artery. And had it broken off one more time, it would have gone straight to my head, and I, I would have died of a stroke. Um, but they told me that, oh, it's going to be a simple surgery. We're just going to go down your femoral artery, and uh, we're going to be able to dig it out real easy, just a couple hours. All right, great. That's fine. Uh, I was wheeled into surgery. I woke up 12 hours later. What was supposed to be a two-hour simple procedure turned into an incredible, massive ordeal where the blood clot was so thick that they couldn't do it through the femoral artery, so then they had to go and open up my calf, and they basically filleted it, and then they couldn't still break it down, so they cut it out, and then they, I'm, I'm part pig, uh, they actually put a pig artery in there to replace that, uh, because my, my arteries were just too clogged. During that process, I came to find out later on that if things didn't go well, that I probably would have lost my leg. Um, and then they realized, like, you know, there's research, why did it go down? Why did it go back down to the artery? So that's when they found out that I had a, uh, a hole in my heart. So six months later, I had to go back into surgery to, to plug up the hole in my heart. And then after all that was done, I thought it was great. I'm out in the clear. I started getting infections. So then they had to go back in and clean out all the infections. And I thought that was good. And another year later, I got another infection where this time I had this mass like the size of my fist here. And uh, they added, uh, instead of going back in this time, they just put me on some incredibly toxic uh, antibiotics uh, where I had a pick line inserted into my arm that went straight into my heart to, to, to get the antibiotics there. Come to find out that the, the bacteria was so rare that uh, Alana couldn't figure out what it was, so they had to send it to the Mayo Clinic, and it took them about a month to figure out what it was, and they found out that I was one of 10, maybe less than 10 people in all of America that they know who contracted this bacteria, and I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's totally me. That doesn't surprise me at all, you know. Th that would totally happen to me. And so I was on this... Uh, um, uh, pick line uh, where I had to feed myself antibiotics for, for about a year. And finally, after three years, I was finally in the clear. But at every turn, when these complications happened and I needed another surgery, it actually underscored to me these lessons that I learned. God was constantly reinforcing to me, hey, life is a gift. Invest in what matters. Live your life with meaning and purpose. Every single time this happened, it was a reminder that this is how we are to live our lives. Friends, um, <clears throat> I hope all of us here understand how fragile our lives are. You know, we think we're strong. We think we're young. It's extremely fragile. And when our time is up, our time is up.
you don't know when that time is up. It's like a lease to an apartment that you can't renew. Once God says that your lease is over, there's no renewing. It's done. And I'm not trying to be morbid and say that we're all going to die soon. I hope not. I really, I really hope that's not the case. What I, what I am trying to say is that we understand how precious this life is and what a gift it in fact is. And the question that I have for you all here this morning is, are you going to live it foolishly and selfishly, or are you going to invest in what matters? Are you going to live for God, for his glory, for his fame? If we don't recognize that life is a gift and we don't embrace that, then life becomes an entitlement. If we don't recognize that we need to invest in what matters and we don't embrace this, then our lives are going to be full of junk, junk food, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. If we don't recognize that we need to live life with meaning, we don't embrace that, then we're going to live aimlessly, wandering. And you're going to look back on your deathbed at your life and say, man, what was this all about? Was this worth it? <clears throat> I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think God gave you this gift of life so that you could just live it selfishly for yourself. And I don't think that Jesus Christ died on the cross to give us salvation so that you could live this life simply for yourself. I believe it is God's will and God's desire that we appreciate this incredible gift of life and that we invest it in things that matter and live meaning with life and purpose so that his name will be glorified and his name will be made famous. My prayer to each and every one of you here this morning is that, that you are reminded of these and live vicariously through me, because please don't go through this. That's a bad way to do this, bad way to learn this lesson. But live this life as a gift. Live it with meaning. Live it with purpose. Invest in what matters so that God's name will be glorified and made famous. Let's pray together. God, we just want to take this moment to, to thank you for this incredible gift called life. We praise you and we exalt you, Lord. And, and we just want to simply thank you for creating us. Thank you for saving us. And in response to that, God, we pray that, that this life that we live will not be for ourselves, but that we live it honoring you and glorifying you by investing in things that matter and living this life with incredible meaning and purpose for your glory and for your fame. So we pray that that becomes a truth and reality in our lives. We pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we live in such a way that brings you honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.